0: If you've got the right relationships and you build the right risk model, you can get the resources you need, not necessarily what you want, but the resources you need to do the job right.
1: Hello, and welcome to Code to Cloud. I'm Tim Chase, Global Field CISO at Lacework, and today I'm excited to talk with Bill Darty. Bill is CISO at Amata Health, and he brings with him over 25 years of experience in IT and security at such companies as Raging Wire, StubHub, and Copart. Bill, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here.
1: All right. Let's just get straight into it. I don't believe kind of in lead ins. I, I want to start talking about HIPAA right off the top, right? One of the most fun things about being in the security industry is dealing with, with regulations. And obviously, you working for a healthcare organization, you've got some very specific ones that you have to deal with. For example, HIPAA. So, you know, at the CISO at Amata Health. Obviously, one of your primary challenges is navigating HIPAA. How do you deal with that? Like, what do you and your team do to be able to make sure that you're HIPAA compliant and that you're protecting the data of
0: patients? It's interesting. As a CISO, HIPAA is the bane of my existence, but it's also my best friend. And what I mean by that is... That in healthcare, everything is harder than it would be if you're at another organization because you have this overarching set of regulations. At the same time, it's easier to justify investing in security and investing in privacy and investing in controls because you have this overarching set of controls coming from the federal government that says you must do this. So. Things that were easy at other companies are really hard. But at the same time, things that were hard at other companies, like justifying budget for some things, are actually easier at a healthcare organization because HIPAA gives you the stick, if you will.
1: That's a really good way of looking at it. You know, I, I've been talking with several Cecil's lately, had a panel yesterday, and I think that really hones in on something that. It's important when it comes to budgeting, right? So obviously we're all fighting for budget. The security leaders are no exception. Like I very rarely have I ever heard of a CISO that says, I get what I want, you know, and, and leaves it to that, right? We're always having to balance and fight for it, right? And then you're doing that sometimes with a board that may not be security focused, right? So you find that when you go up to your executives, or you go up to your board, being able to say things like, look, we've got to comply to HIPAA in order to comply to HIPAA. Like we've got to enforce it. all of this encryption here. We have to be monitoring at the intrusion detection level. Like it kind of gives you that way of enforcing security and getting budget.
0: I would say I've never met the CISO that has too much budget. I certainly don't have too much budget. And if my board is listening in, I could I could absolutely use some more money, but it gives you kind of a baseline where for us, we are protecting millions of records of health information. And if we have a data breach, it is an existential risk to the company. Because foundational, what we do is trust. We have to have the trust of our partners and our customers and our patients. And a data breach would break that trust. So You have to then have a good relationship with your board and with the rest of your executive team where if I say, I must have this, like if I don't have this, we're putting the life of the company at risk. You have to build up a trust where you can't just pull that card every time. If you pull that card every time, your chicken little is not going to work. But it certainly gives you a framework and a backdrop to say, these are the things that are really important and these are the things that we must do and here's why. I was working with their general counsel the last couple of months trying to come up with a more sophisticated financial model where we could actually model out what is our real risk of a data breach on a per record basis. And the answer is it's really, really complicated. It's also really large dollar amounts. This year, we will cross having more than 1 million patients in our program. So think of that as 1 million people where we have health information. Now, go look at any study on the cost of, or the risk of a record. And let's say it gives you a range and at the low end of the range, it's 5 or $10 a record. At the high end of the range, it's $500 a record. So $500 a record times a million patients is a really large number of a data breach. But that isn't actually our risk because not all records are created equal. So I guess it's a long way of saying if you've got the right relationships and you build the right risk model, you can get the resources you need. Not necessarily what you want, but the resources you need to do the job right.
1: Tying it back to business objectives, whether that's, you know, keeping the uh goodwill, not being fine, but just in general, helping them advance the business, right? They've got a million. I'm sure that they would like to have more data because, you know, that's how they grow and they expand, right? And so tying it to those business objectives is something that I've been hearing a lot about and talking a lot about lately. But one thing I do want to hone in on, because I'm really kind of curious your thoughts. You mentioned that HIPAA is a good start. I think you said it's a framework. Do you find that? you start at HIPAA, but then you have to add more controls on top of HIPAA in order to you know, protect the data to an even better extent?
0: Yeah, I think that that's fair. HIPAA is a 25-year-old law and things evolve over time. So certainly if you just took the security rule of HIPAA and said, okay, this is my checklist, you aren't meeting the bare minimums. You might be meeting the bare minimums of HIPAA, but you're not meeting the bare minimums of what you actually have to do to protect your data. So what we've done is over the years, we've put together our control framework, and it's based on some standards. It's based on NIST, and it's based on SOC 2, and it's based on HITRUST, and it's based on the security rule of HIPAA, and then... We layer onto that also obligations we've made to other customers. So we sell to the largest employers and the largest insurance companies in the country. And when you do that, they have lots of opinions as to what your security ought to be as well. And so we make contractual commitments. And when we do that, that then becomes a new set of controls that have to go into our bucket and into our framework.
1: One of the things that I've seen lately is that Florida is introducing new regulations that prohibit providers from storing data offshore. What's your kind of interpretation with what they're doing? And what do you think the implications of that are?
0: If I remember correctly, it's SB 264 is the new Florida law. And what they did is they've imposed new obligations on healthcare providers using uh, certified EHRs, certified electronic health record systems. To store only in the United States, but it it actually goes a little bit farther. When you read into it, it covers storage processing and accessing of health information. The general idea there is they don't want health information offshored. Now, there's two good things for us. One is we aren't using a certified EHR. So even though we have Florida patients, it's not really clear that the law applies to us. The second is we have always operated in the U.S. where we store and process exclusively in the U.S. We commit to our customer contracts. The sticking point really is going to be the definition of access. So, if you think about it, like we are a cloud native company, so we have lots of SaaS providers. We run all of our infrastructure in Amazon. The large SaaS providers in Amazon, they have global support organizations. And there is a scenario where one of my SaaS providers that has electronic health records in it could have a support organization in Australia or in India. And if I contact them for support in the middle of the night, are they accessing health information from offshore? It's a harder problem to solve. And so we're looking at it, A, trying to figure out exactly what is meant by access. B, does it apply to the systems that we're talking about, or does it only apply to a certified EHR? And then C, what do we do about it? I think the spirit of it is good, which is we should keep U.S. health information inside the U.S. And that's how most Health providers operate Mm -hmm. today, but the details of it become really tricky. And it's always at the edge cases. The edge cases for security are really hard to write into law. That's
1: tricky, right? Every time I feel like we try and do something here when it comes to the law and cybersecurity, there's always still a matter of catch-up. Like we talked about HIPAA earlier, where you know it may say encrypt, but it doesn't say how to encrypt or what level of encryption because it's kind of ambiguous. But like when you talk about this Florida healthcare law, it's like one of those things that it almost has to get out there, have the critique and feedback first or second round, and then, you know, do it. The one thing that's still a little bit interesting to me, at least is it can't be stored there, but what about the access? So what if you have an offshore provider, you know, in Eastern Europe or in Asia that just connect in through zero trust or VPN or something like that? I don't think it prevents anything like that. And does that? kind of halfway negate
0: the security risk or does that? I think that's where the there's a difference between how we think about security risk and how we think compliance with the law. And I am far from an expert on the details of Florida's law and I, I've got great privacy attorneys that help me with this thing. But I think the risk of accessing data from offshore if you have the right controls in place is relatively low. We still try to prevent it, but the law may not account for any nuance. The law may just say you can't access it. And so you then have to go, exactly what do you mean by the term access? Does reading it on a screen mean access? Does downloading it to my computer mean access? Does printing it mean access? There's lots of different use cases, and we have to know exactly which ones are allowed and which ones aren't in order to comply.
1: And and how do you define offshore? That was the thing that always bugged me a little bit. Like, I would see contracts that would say, or laws that you can't do anything offshore. Well, I mean, are you trying to just say anything outside of the U.S.? What about Canada, Mexico? Like like how do you define offshore exactly? So <laughs> that
0: that is a great question. In our contracts, we usually specify within the United States. There you okay? go. So now then, sometimes it says the 50 United States. Does that include <laughs> or exclude Washington DC? Sometimes <laughs> it says the United States and sometimes it says United States and territories. So Ooh. like we have a provision where we don't allow employees to take a, a company laptop outside the US. Mm-hmm. Can they take a laptop to Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands, or can they take a laptop to Alaska if their flight to Alaska actually lands in Canada on the way? That's the one that I was it's thinking of. It's, <laughs> the, yep. it's the always the edge cases that get you. And so we we try to write policies and put in controls and do all kinds of things to deal with the nominal case and the edge cases, but it's always the edge cases that keep me up at night.
1: It's kind of the hacker in all of us, right? Even the ones that, that aren't hackers, like, you know, I, I could never be a hacker. That just wasn't the way my mind was built. But like, it's, it's the way you want to game the system a little bit, right? And figure out how to game it. Like, that's the security in all of us a little bit, I think. Speaking of which, gaming the system and kind of planning that out, one of the things that I want to talk to you about is threat modeling. Because I think that's an area that you have a lot of experience in, you put a lot of effort in. So before we kind of go into your threat model and that you and your team developed, I'd like to talk about like, Just for people who may not know, like what is a threat model inside of the the cybersecurity space?
0: Yeah, So generally speaking, a threat model is a systematic way of trying to identify what can go wrong with the system ahead of time and then tailoring your controls around it. A lot of work was developed on this from Microsoft several years Mm ago. The Stride model, there is a fantastic book by a guy named Adam Shostak that anybody who's interested in threat modeling, read that book. It is the Bible. He's brilliant on it. And they were really focusing on the biggest kind of commonplace risks in software development and how do we prevent those. So things like we want to our software to be available. So the D in stride stands for denial of service. What do we need to do in our code or in our system design to prevent denial of service so that we have this goal of availability achievable? So it's been around for a lot of years. And one of the goals of using threat modeling is to do it early. And the other is to make it repeatable. So you, you want to be able to have across a large group of people, the same general answers to come out every time you do it. If that makes sense. So it's Mm -hmm. a systematic way of identifying risks versus just getting into a room with a whiteboard and throwing stuff at a wall and see what sticks.
1: Yeah, I think the repeatable part is something I've always honed in on in my cyber career. Like when I'm leading a starting a cloud security team or an application security team, whatever you do in the process you roll out has to be repeatable. It can't be something that you and you alone can do. And you can only hit play once and then you're not going to get the same thing every time. I think that even goes back to my testing days when I was running like performance tests and automation tests. Like, right, it's got to be 100% repeatable. So I I agree with that. But you also mentioned that it it has to be integrated into the lifecycle. Like, how do you integrate threat modeling into the lifecycle? Like, where would you put it? Is it the beginning, the end? Is it part of like the continuous improvement cycle of DevOps?
0: All of the above. Where you're doing it right, you're doing it at the design phase of a project, and then you are coming back to it as the project progresses. So let's say you're, you're designing a new application and the application is going to have sensitive data in it, so we know we need an authentication mechanism. And we're going to write down at the very beginning what we think the authentication mechanism ought to be and is it single factor or multi-factor? Okay, great. Now we've got that written down. Now we start going and writing code and three months in, we change our mind and as to what the authentication mechanism is going to be. All right, let's go back to the threat model and see what impact that has. And are we making things better or worse? What are the compensating controls? Let's update the model. And then you get into testing or you get into production, you have something to validate against this. Oh, at the very beginning in our design, we said we were using multi-factor. Now it's in live in production and I can get in without multi-factor. What changed? Change. So mm-hmm. it, it's a way of analyzing a system and you can look at it. Like if you have a system in place already, you can go do a threat model on it and use that to assess the risk of the system. But ideally you're doing it at the very, very beginning. We also use it for our vendors. Every time we're, we're going to bring on a new vendor, we do a threat model on them because we need to figure out how that vendor is going to fit into our ecosystem. So a, a good threat model can be inserted at all various stages of the life cycle. Yeah, it seems like there's a little bit of parallel, I
1: think, like the way that I do static testing sometimes. Like, it's not always like you run a fresh static scan every single time. Sometimes it's, you run it on the diff, like what right. has changed and you just run it based on that, right? Like, because that's the way I think to scale to some extent, like at the very beginning or maybe at the beginning of every release or something along those lines, like maybe you'll run a, a fresh one just to make sure that you have a complete understanding Yeah, miss anything. And it comes at the end, like I'm a big fan of the The continuous improvement. So some people think it's very much linear and then you're done with the development of what you're building, right? But at the end, you should be doing a a lessons learned, a continuous improvement. And that threat model, I think, should be kind of in there as well.
0: Yeah, your static testing model example that fits really well with kind of how we use threat modeling, because part Mm -hmm. of it is we have a baseline set of controls. And so we can go through a system and very quickly say, is this going to adhere to the baseline set of controls? If so, check the box and move on. So using authentication as an example, we bring in lots of SaaS products. Do they integrate with our single sign-on tool? Yes or no? If they do, then I automatically pick up all kinds of stuff. I pick up multi-factor. I pick up device certifications. I pick up you know role-based access, lots of stuff. If they don't, now I need to go deeper and say, okay, since you can't adhere to my single sign-on thing, what are you doing? How are we managing factors? Who's managing passwords? How do we provision? How do we deprovision? All this stuff that is built into my framework of base controls that if you just said yes, we get to move on. So it's a way for us to identify the path of least resistance also. like You, you can evaluate three vendors and one of them adheres to all your controls and one of them is a unique unicorn. Go with the one that <laughs> adheres to all your controls. Your life will be easier. 100%. But continuing along with the
1: threat model talk, you developed one yourself called Includes No Dirt, right? And so you win for better name than Stride. So maybe just talk about like, where in the world did that name come from, Right. And then what does it do? Like, how is it different from like Stride or some of the other ones that maybe we're familiar with?
0: So I take no credit for the name. My head of compliance and I, we co-wrote the paper on this. What we were trying to figure out is we knew we wanted to insert threat modeling into our process, but... As you can imagine, I was very focused on security and he was very focused on compliance. And we also have our privacy officer is very focused on privacy. And there was no kind of one overarching model that encompasses that triad of security, compliance, and privacy. We had stride for security. There's something on the privacy, I think it's called Lindum. There wasn't a great one for compliance. And so we said, well, gee, let's write our own. And so we, we put together a list of the you know risk categories and then he started playing with the first letter of all of them because Stride is just an acronym. Well, so is ours. And so we reordered things until he came up with good's No Dirt, which governs security and privacy and compliance, has a cool acronym. And then, you know, it also has the advantage of like, well, if we've ticked off the whole threat model, then our system is dirt free. Like, or, or we're reducing the dirt in our, so it. So it's got <laughs> works that, both ways. It works both ways. It, exactly. <laughs> so like, In the stride model, the S stands for spoofing uh, and it stands for spoofing and includes no dirt too, but we have includes no dirt for us includes identifiability for every risk. There's a goal also. So for spoofing, your goal is authentication for identifiability. Your goal is anonymity. So if you think in health data, sometimes we want to de-identify data and there's lots of good reasons to do that. Well, if you do that, can you re-identify it? And if you can, that's a risk because if we say something is de-identified, a whole different set of rules and controls and laws yep. apply to it. So that is a privacy risk for us. So I won't bore you with every risk and every goal in the model, but includes no dirt, it's an acronym and we wrote this down. We kind of started using it and we said, hey, we think this is really cool and we haven't found anyone else doing something similar in healthcare, but we want to make healthcare better. So we wrote a white paper on it and we published it to the world for free and said, hey, other healthcare people, security and privacy practitioners, please start using this. It'll make your life better. So anyone who wants it, you can download it Includes dirt.com. and we hope you use it and we hope you extend it and modify it and make it your own. I
1: love it. I spent... Uh quite a bit of time reading through it after we talked last time, it's just because I'm always I'm always curious w- when I'm building training or talking to people about threat modeling, like what are some of the different options that are out there? So if you haven't checked it out, just Google, you know, includes no dirt threat model and, and learn more about it and read the white paper. It's a really interesting way to go about it. So taking the conversation a little bit of a different direction, but I kind of want to talk about cybersecurity basics. And why do you think that it's important to revisit cybersecurity basics? And then what are the basics?
0: A couple of years ago, actually, during COVID, I got asked to be a contributing author to a book with a bunch of other CSOs called Back to Basics. And the topic of it was basically asking a bunch of people who've got a lot of scar tissue and have done this, how do we get back to just the core essence of what we're doing as security practitioners and cover the basics? And if you look at a lot of breaches that occur every year, it's pretty clear that there's some organizations that aren't even covering the basics. So, you know, what are the basics? To a certain extent, it varies by company because your risk model is different than mine. I'm dealing with health information. So the basics of protecting health information are governed by things like HIPAA. The basics of covering uh, social media information or auction information or pick your business are going to be different. But there's some things that just kind of rise to the surface of what I think are basics across all businesses. I think I gave a list in there of ten or fifteen in that book. Like authentication. We all know authentication sucks. We all know passwords sucks. We know that MFA works. Why aren't we using it? Um, it used to be MFA was expensive and hard, and single sign-on was expensive and hard. It's now cheap and easy. So to me, authentication, changing your default passwords. Those are basics. Uh, earlier, Tim, you mentioned encryption, data encryption. Again, it used to be hard and expensive. Now it's cheap and easy. Encrypt your data. Encrypt it at rest. Encrypt it at transit. You and encrypt your data with the you know the latest algorithms. Don't try to roll your own. Don't get fancy. The stuff that's out there works pretty well. Patching is another one. Most vulnerabilities are resolved if you just patch your stuff. Yes, there are zero days and they will hit you, but the odds are actually against you getting hit by a zero day if you patch your systems because the zero days always hit the largest targets first and then a patch gets created before it makes its way to you. So these are the kinds of things that I think are just fundamental basics for organizations. Occasionally I'll talk to startups, people just getting into this. What should my security program be? It's like, okay, here's 10 or 15 things. Go do these and then we'll talk about everything else. If you haven't done these, like the rest of it is gravy compared to the first 10.
1: Why do you think that's so difficult to understand? Because I feel the same way. Like when I'm talking with customers, sometimes I feel like, all right, let's just take two steps back on what you're doing and like, you know, trying to decide, are you doing the right thing? And are you focusing on the right thing? Like, why is basics so hard? Is it because we're busy? Is it we don't understand? Is it so much information
0: thrown at us? Like, what's your take? I think there's a lot of contributing factors. You know, we started the call talking about budgets and you're always fighting for budgets. Basics aren't cool and sexy. And a lot of times they're boring and your staff doesn't want to work on them. I'm at a company that's 13 years old, but was born in the cloud, lives in the cloud, we don't have 30 or 40 years of legacy systems. And it's always the legacy systems that kill you. My previous job was the CISO and CTO for a data center company. And data centers are very large refrigerated boxes with very expensive industrial control systems. And the industrial control systems were never designed with security in mind. They use protocols like BACnet across two wire and there is no authentication mechanism. There is no encryption of those protocols and then oftentimes you're connecting it to like a Windows 98 or a Windows NT4 system because when they produced this thing 10-15 years prior that's just what you did. And there's no budget to upgrade it. So now you've got to put a whole bunch of secure wrappers around this thing. It's like when you were a kid and you had to drop an egg and not have it break. And so you'd wrap it in bubble wrap, you know, science project, you'd wrap it in bubble wrap and do other stuff because the core was fragile. And so we start layering all this crap on top of it. And then somebody forgets or they they have trouble and things are breaking all the time. So they open up a port just so they can access it from home. They're not trying to do something malicious, but they blow past all your layers of security to make their life easier. So I kind of think that's why it's hard. I think legacy systems are hard. I think budgets are hard. Oftentimes also, I think the third area is who's responsible for it? So like I run IT and security, so I'm responsible for it. But if IT and security are separate, the security person says, patch your systems. And the IT person says, yeah, that's on my roadmap. I'll get to it next year.
1: All right. So let's talk a little bit about you and and kind of your journey to uh, being a CISO. So walk us through early career. Like how did you first get involved in IT and security? By accident, I've
0: been dealing with computers my whole life going back to my Atari 800 days in the mid 70s. I went to a camp when I was I don't know 12 or 13 at Caltech where we learned punch cards. So I've been dealing with computers and computer systems for a very long time, but I came out of college with a business degree and my first job in life was a mortgage broker. And weirdly at that was also the first time I sold software commercially because I was a mortgage broker, and I was lazy. And every Monday morning, we had to produce sales reports for our sales manager. And there's a whole team of people. They were all doing these spreadsheets, and it would take hours and hours. And I figured that this was a problem I could solve with a computer program. So I wrote something in FileMaker Pro to manage my portfolio of loans. And every Monday morning, the boss would ask me for my report. I'd click print and here's the report I go on with my day. And all the other brokers said, hey, we want that too. So I sold it to them for beer. They Basically, <laughs> we'd go out drinking and they would pay my beer and that got them unlimited software updates and support. Nice. So I was a mortgage broker for a couple of years. The interest rates went up, not unlike what's been going on in the markets last year or so. The mortgage market fell apart. And so I said, well, gee, I need another way to earn an income. I know a little something about computers, so I started selling computers. And I spent 10 years in the reseller community selling hardware, software, services, networking, etc., mainly to the Fortune 500. And after five or six years of selling this stuff, I I was tired of living on commission. I was tired of selling without technical support. And I went to my boss and said, I want to become an engineer. I want to become a sales engineer. And Hmm. if I do that, I want you to put me on salary and I want to support all the other salespeople because we didn't have any sales engineers and I'll take a cut of their commissions. And he said, okay, that sounds like a great plan because he thought it would take me years to become an engineer. And I went and passed my MCSE in like six weeks and then came back to him. He was kind of shocked, but that kind of started me on my journey. And so I did that for a while. I co-founded an MSP in the early 2000s when MSPs were cool. And then after a few years, one of my customers recruited me away to work in IT for them. And so I jumped the fence from being a a service provider to being a customer. And that was really where I got into security in depth. I looked at the kind of the landscape and realized security people made more money than IT people. And I also kind of liked security. So I went and got my CISSP and started going to Black Hat and DEF CON and building up my skills and kind of grew from there. And for the next 10, 15 years of my career, I kind of straddled this fence where I had an IT title, but also responsible for security, or I had a security title, also responsible for IT. And then now at Omada, my title is security, but I'm also responsible for internal IT. I think that that model works really well because I'm responsible not only for the policy, but for the implementation. And so that makes me accountable for how well it works.
1: So it sounds like the CISO became kind of a natural path at, at, at some point. Like just because you wanted to do more, you got that skill set, you built it up, and then eventually like the CISO just made sense for you because you were managing it, you were doing it, then managing it, and then just leading it for the for the company. Yeah, yeah I think that's the- fair.
0: At every job I entered, I was able to kind of advance my career and take on more responsibility and more leadership. But CISOs have to be really good at talking to the business. It's one of the most important roles of a CISO is understanding the needs of your executive partners. So my early days in banking, you know, mortgage banking and in selling, those actually helped me out a lot because I've carried a bag. I know what it looks like or a company I was at, I, I was responsible for accounting and, and accounting system transition. So I can talk to the CFO about our financials and I can talk to our head of commercial about the sales process. And I can kind of understand the world they're in because that's the world I came from before I started trying to implement systems.
1: That is awesome. And one last question, and then we'll get to some rapid fire questions. So any advice that you have to someone entering the IT or information security field for success?
0: I almost always tell people to go become an expert in something else first. So the best IT people and the best security people that I know have some other expertise within the business first. So it, like, if you want to be really good at operating a financial system, you should understand accounting first. And not just understand it, but you should have actually had to pay a bill or make payroll or lived what it's like. If you want to run an HRIS system, you should have some expertise in working in an HR department. Uh, if you want to run Salesforce, run a commercial system, you should have some expertise in the sales side of the house and some affinity for what it's like to get up every morning and make 50 hold calls and get hung up on 50 times because that then gives you the, the knowledge you need to make the system better for the people who are going to actually use it. So I consider the fact that I didn't start out in IT or security actually a gift because it gives me at least some empathy for my customers. That's why I love it when I'm able to take staff in other departments that are interested in transitioning and give them an entry role if possible because they come with a different set of knowledge than you get if you came out of college with a CS degree.
1: Now that, that's a great point. And I find that same thing when I talk sometimes with people that are on the CIO, the CTO side of the house or the, like the developers before they came over to being a security. It's like they have that empathy. So rather than taking things and you know flipping them over the wall to the developers and saying, do it. Like they have the empathy on that side of kind of having security shove stuff in their face. So when they actually are in charge of security, like all of a sudden they're like, okay, like we need to figure out how to be, enablers for this dev team make their life easier, not harder, right? So I think the empathy factor comes in all around. I, I like that.
0: Yeah, 100%. Security departments and CISOs, we get a bad rap because people think our job is to say no. That isn't our job at all. That's the polar opposite. Our job is to say yes safely. Yes. And so th- the best way to say yes is to understand what the other party is trying to do because they're trying to do something malicious. They're trying to move the business forward. Your job is to enable them and and be a support organization for them.
1: Spot on. Exactly. I love it. Okay, let's get to some rapid fire questions. I got three of them for you. Yeah, here you go. Ready? What's the most important habit an IT leader can have?
0: Curiosity. Like when I am talking with the rest of the business leaders and I'm being presented financial data or sales data, I want to know what's underneath it. And if you ask a lot of why questions and you get deeper, oftentimes you will uncover something down deep, three or four layers deep, where your department can actually have an impact on it. Like, it turns out that the real reason we missed our numbers this month was because something my team did interrupted our most important sales meeting in the middle of it. And hey, maybe we should put in a control that prevents that from happening next time. So curiosity. What emerging technology or trend in cybersecurity excites you the most? I would say AI both excites and scares me. It excites because it has tons of potential for being kind of a force multiplier scares me because there's tons of risk and not like a skynet risk but risk of data breach I've been playing a lot with these tools and there isn't a day goes by that I don't get them to hallucinate and get <laughs> just flat out factually wrong information from them that the tools will present as though it is 100% factual and in a situation where we want to use it to like improve the quality of healthcare Factually wrong information is really bad. So I'm I'm both excited and terrified of them, but, you know, never bored. Never bored. That could
1: be our motto in general with security, right? It's terrified, but never bored. Exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> what
0: one tip would you offer listeners to increase their cybersecurity? Focus on your relationships with your customers. Oh, like yeah, that's the, a great one. The worst incidents in security happen because nobody told you what was going on. And the narrative is like, well, why didn't you tell me you wanted to do that? Because we could have said yes safely versus trying to go around me. So build up great relationships so that you become an enabler and not a roadblock. I love it.
1: Thank you, Bill. That is all for us today. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe or write us a review. And we'll see you next time on the Code to Cloud podcast.
0: This, this podcast is brought to you by Lacework the leading data-driven cloud-native application protection platform. Lacework is trusted by nearly a 1,000 global innovators to secure the cloud from build to run. Lacework delivers true end-to-end protection, empowering customers to prioritize risks, find known and unknown threats faster, achieve continuous cloud compliance, and work smarter, not harder, all from one unified platform. Learn more at lacework.com.